Welcome to the Responsible Finance Podcast, the official podcast of the Responsible Finance and Investment Foundation. I am Blake Good, the CEO of the RFI Foundation, a global nonprofit organization working to build awareness, promote research, and encourage convergence in the responsible finance industry, including socially responsible investment, ESG, Islamic finance, and impact investment. The purpose of the Responsible Finance Podcast is to connect you to the leaders behind innovative approaches to creating positive social impact in responsible finance. In this podcast, we talk to Michael Luft, an author with deep experience in the financial services industry, particularly in financial services for the poor, microfinance. Coming from a commercial banking and regulatory background, Michael is a credit committee member at SME crowdfunding portal Lendahand and was previously the regional director for Europe and Asia at Kiva. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michael. Welcome to the Responsible Finance Podcast. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Blake. Uh, I'm Michael Luft, and I currently work for Lendahand, uh, which is a crowdfunding website that supports um, small and medium enterprises. I formerly worked for Kiva for five years, uh, another crowdfunding website. Yeah, and, and with Kiva, what was your role, and where did you, uh, where did you see see interesting uh, growth coming, particularly you know, where it overlaps into Islamic microfinance? Sure. Yeah, I was at Kiva from 2010 to 2015, and I started out as a portfolio manager supporting Central Asia and Southeast Asia. And then I was promoted to regional director, and I added South Asia and the Middle East to my portfolio. Eventually, I, I covered all of Asia and uh, Europe and the Middle East, so pretty much half the world. And I managed a team of five portfolio managers, and we, you know, we have a partnership model. So we partner with small banks um, that are serving uh, underserved people, poorest to the poor, and and different people in the social strata. And one of the interesting I, things I found when I first came to Kiva was that um, Kiva, being in the position of giving a, effectively 0% financing to small banks, we were putting our money in with other funders who were actually charging interest. So uh, I saw an opportunity for Kiva to, to go a little bit deeper uh, to some poorer populations and also to, to allow our partners to use money in ways that they, for experiments or ways that they were trying to, to use it that were potentially costly. And one of those was is, is uh, Islamic finance, because it is uh, sometimes a little bit more cumbersome. And I first learned about Islamic finance actually back in grad school. I was studying at Harvard, and I took a class in Islamic banking over at the Fletcher School. And at that time, I was also taking classes in Islam. I, I actually went to the Divinity School. And I was blown away by not just the religion, but this idea of you know, not charging interest. And historically, you know, Christianity and Judaism also had some of those rules, but over time, if they've uh, opened up uh, lending at interest, but Islam never did budge on that. And, and I found it intriguing and I kept asking why. And one of the things that came to me was that it, it's a, it's a way of, of sharing risk. It's a way of um, creating a, at least in, in the terms that I read, a brotherhood where, where people could um, rely on each other 
and that traditional banking had sort of gone the opposite direction. And so it, it intrigued me. And then I, I found when I started to work with the Middle East partners that some of them were engaging in these activities and, uh, or trying to, and I wanted to support that. So I, I helped to grow out Kiva's Islamic lending portfolio. And in which countries were, was the Islamic uh, financing happening? Mm-hmm. So we supported partners in Iraq, Jordan, uh, the West Bank, uh, and Lebanon. And then interestingly enough, in Indonesia, which has a, has a large Muslim population. That's interesting. And how managing that process along with the other portfolios you said you had you covered all of Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and Asia, how much on-the-ground time were you able to spend in, in places where the Islamic microfinance was happening? Yeah, I would say, um, so I had, a, I had a team, and I had one guy in particular who, he had worked um, prior to Kiva for three years um, in um, Ramallah, and he introduced me to some potential partners, and so I traveled with him, and then also on my own, I would spend... Uh, let's say a week in, in Iraq, which is an interesting story because actually um, I, I flew out of Lebanon and I landed at the wrong airport. I spent the week there without any luggage. <laughs> um, and we supported a couple partners there who were doing different forms of microfinance. One of them was um, a uh, uh, 0% all the way um, loans to very poor people. Um, something I'm very proud of. We also did some work in Pakistan, but I never did go to Pakistan. We had some restrictions on traveling there. And I spent a few weeks in Lebanon and a few weeks in, in, uh, in not Gaza, but the West Bank and the Ramallah area. And then a, a lot of time in Jordan back and forth over the years. So uh, I would say taking all together a, a couple of months. Yeah, and what, what did you... See, did you see something different with how the Islamic microfinance institutions were approaching, uh, approaching the population that they're working with? Was there a different, uh, different type of relationship between uh, those institutions and the institutions that were interest-based? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, in terms of Islamic finance, I think there's a couple different ways to look at it. One was, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to tailor products to uh, conform or, or to, um, you know, to help communities who would not take this loan otherwise um, or w- would not get financing otherwise. So in one way, you're trying to help people. Um, you're trying to be sensitive to the religion. I think f- from my perspective, what I was really seeing was um, Islam teaching us about universal principles of how to treat each other and how to protect people from being exploited. And I actually found amongst the different partners, different viewpoints on that. So, for example, in Iraq, where they were using a, a form of, um, it wasn't interest, it was just an upfront fee that resembled interest. I, I didn't find so much, um, you know, the sense that, oh, well, you know, we're, we're trying to um, create this, you know, sense of a relationship or responsibility. or It was more of just trying to get around that requirement. Uh, but then when I went to Ramallah, I was blown away by the, the sense that people really, that partners and organizations really did 
um, see this as a collaboration and they knew what they were taking on was an increased risk. So if, you know, in a case of a Marabaha loan where somebody was um, needing like a, you know, some inventory for their store or something like that, some asset based transaction, the bank had to take on that risk and then um, offload that, those items onto the person and, you know, the person would take a loan. So the, there was, there was definitely a risk in that. And then also in Indonesia was the greatest example where uh, the, the bank bought cows and the, and the people actually didn't buy the cows. They just raised the cows. So I think it, it resembled the Masharika transaction where they really, they, um, the bank took on all the risk. And what happened was the cows, the price of cows went down when it came time to sell them. And the bank was really stuck and the people were stuck holding these cows and they had to wait for the market to turn around. We actually at Kiva, we had lenders writing in saying, Hey, I want my money back. And when we explained to them, Hey, this is a true risk sharing opportunity, uh, not just for you, but for the bank and, and the people on the ground and we support it. And when we explained that it, we were overwhelmed by the response that we got from, from Kiva lenders that were really supportive of this. Like w- once they finally got like, Oh yes, we're all sharing in this risk, which, you know, this is a backlash of the financial crisis where risk sharing was not front and center. So I see in terms of what I saw in microfinance play out around the world and the partners we work with is, is a lot of people really getting that. And that, that to me was really inspiring. That's neat to see the, the change in mindset towards Islamic finance and, and how the, the idea of uh, a partnership between parties to a financial transaction can be encouraged just by the, the form of, that the transaction takes. How did you get into microfinance in the first place? And how did you get into end up at Harvard Divinity School? Yeah. And I think these are themes that play out in the novel that I just published. And um, I had started out in regular banking, uh, retail commercial banking here in San Francisco. And I, 2001, I, I made a switch and I moved to uh, DC and I worked for a federal bank regulator, which arguably contributed to the financial crisis. I think I had read a book back in 2005 called Banker to the Poor, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And that book really just changed my life, you know, and as somebody who reads a lot and I'm influenced by different books that I've read, particularly around philosophy and, and things like that. I had read that and I thought, wow, this is, this is really bringing a philosophical approach to um, money lending, uh, which was something I always yearned for. Finance was just something that I, I really, I, I got into partly because I grew up in a low income family and I saw in America that that was a, a road to success. But I also am a numbers person. I really love the work, but I, I felt like something was missing. And I saw this actually play out a lot when I, you know, part of my role at Kiva was interviewing, you know, people of all levels in the organization, particularly CEOs and board members. There's a lot of ex-bankers who are really seeing this as filling a, a need. So I got into microfinance because I myself saw that missing. Um, but I also saw a spiritual connection and there's really no explaining why I saw a connection between, you know, not just religion, but just these universal principles that religions are really trying to teach us and finance. Um, it's an unlikely connection. And that brought me Harvard Divinity, and I um, took a class on Islam because I was basically forced to take classes that in a religion that were not mine. 
And I'm so glad I did because I learned so much about a religion that I find fascinating. Although I'm not a Muslim, I, I find that there's so much that can be taught to us about treatment of other people that Islam just gets. Um, and subsequently, um, really followed a, a scholarship road of looking at that at a deep level. Well, I'll put in the plug here for your, for your book. It's called Crossing Allen B. Bridge. Uh, it just came out. It's on it's available on Amazon and on uh, Kindle, I think now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it sort of follows a similar path, a trajectory from banking into microfinance uh, and across Asia. How much, uh, how was, how did you, uh, what was your first on the ground experience? How, how that, there's, the book has the character, the main character, Harry, uh, end up going to Mongolia and the Philippines as the first, mm-hmm. the first on the ground experience. What was your first on, on the ground experience? Well, actually my first on the ground experience was back in 2007. I worked in Guatemala and I was trying to learn Spanish and I worked for a, a microfinance bank basically as an intern and I had some data analysis skills and I worked with a, a, a few different women's cooperatives and for me it was it was basically getting my feet wet in that that field and that was during grad school and when um when i went to work for kiva after grad school my first trip was to mongolia similar to to harry who's the protagonist in crossing allenby bridge i think harry's he there are some overlaps i think any writer who writes a a protagonist there's going to be some overlaps i think Harry's a different, he's a different person than I am. Um, but in many ways, um, the similarities are, you know, learning and that finance, you know, and ensuring that finance is leading with love. I think, um, you know, the protagonist in the novel, he has a lot to learn about love and how that manifests in finance and how I think about that as sharing risk through trust and vulnerability. I mean, Harry's a, He's an unlikely protagonist. He's a white middle-class banker and, you know, the so-called enemy of the people during the financial crisis. And, you know, he's at the peak of his career in San Francisco. He's working for a bank and um, he's been there for many, many years. He's in his 50s uh, and he's forced into retirement. And that challenges his whole identity, which leads him on this this adventure. Um, And on a whim, he goes off to Mongolia to to visit a guy who actually left the bank. He's a young guy. He represents a young version of, of myself in some ways, but he also resembles um, somebody I worked for at Kiva, who if, if somebody knows Kiva and they read the book, they might spot him. Um, but I think he, he sort of falls backwards into microfinance. And I wouldn't say that that's my, my path, but um, I saw a lot of parallels between that and other people that I've met. So I think a lot of these characters in the novel are, they're amalgamations of different people that, that I've you know, met over the years. And um, one of the things that I just find so beautiful is people who get into microfinance, particularly if they have a banking background, how it just opens them up and they can use those skills that they have in traditional banking and shift gears. Um, and I saw the ultimate expression that in Islamic microfinance by and far. Yeah, it was interesting to see over the course of the book, how the how Harry goes from a fairly unlikable character at the start to 
being uh, more humanized. And I think because of the change that, that takes place because of his experience. Uh, and so it's interesting to see that, that uh, enriching of, of humanity that can come from, from working for other people instead of viewing them sort of as just as counterparties or as customers. Uh, yeah, that's a good point because I think he learns about human relationships throughout the novel and how important that is. And, you know, at some point, I don't want to reveal too much of the plot, but he loses, he loses all of his money in, in the stock market. And he, his identity is, is really wrapped up in that, in being a rich white male. And he, um, he learns uh, the power of other people helping him who don't really, they don't have to help him, but they do consistently throughout the novel come not just to his rescue, but um, come to, to view him as a human being. He learns about what it means to be in quote, right relationship with other people. Yeah. And I think that's a, a good place that the microfinance has started is, is opening up the, the relationships. How, how successful has microfinance been at its aim of uh, addressing poverty and where are the, where are the benefits and the shortfalls that it, that the industry overall has had. That was one of the reasons why I wrote this book, because as you mentioned earlier, I published a few books on similar topics. Um, one was called Inspired Finance, and a lot of it was based on my scholarship and looking at people's history of money and wealth and, and expressions of microfinance. And I think while that did pretty well in the academic community, I think people really need a story. They need something that's going to grab them. Um, and I feel like um, microfinance itself, while for many years, particularly when I was at Kiva, it was the golden child of, you know, the nonprofit world and everybody liked it. But then, you know, you get these stories that are coming out about interest rates and there's a lot of tension within microfinance. And I think part of that has to do with um, people assuming it's a silver bullet. And what I don't, I see microfinance as actually a stopgap measure uh, until the world sort of wakes up and shifts how they view finance. Viewing finance as a way of manifesting love just sounds a little bit odd. Um, but in a way, it's, you're helping other people um, and you're sharing risk along that. You're being vulnerable and you're learning to trust. The financial world is not really about trust right now. But I do feel like Islam has so much to teach us about that trust and that my hope is not just my book, but just the industry um, starts to raise awareness more about our traditional financial systems. And we are seeing a little bit of that coming together with um, banks starting quote down, going down market. Uh, I just, I, I don't want to sound cynical. I just don't see the needle moving as fast as I'd like to, but, that's just somebody who's been working in the industry for a decade that, you know, I, I wish things would move faster, but um, I do feel like organizations like yours are raising awareness around um, ways of alternative finance that I think could go mainstream. And we're seeing a little bit of that with crowdfunding. Yeah. The, the crowdfunding seems to be taking over a little bit of the, of the, the attention of microfinance because it is a it's a peer-to-peer -peer finance i don't remember exactly where i read this but i was reading something uh about the value of microfinance being that everyone's a natural entrepreneur and it's unlocking possibilities 
there, I think there have been some cases where that has been shown not to be true. How, where's, where's the balance between enabling uh, entrepreneurs uh, and then how, how do you help people who are not necessarily uh, interested in, in being entrepreneurs with microfinance type uh, services? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually it's very um, relevant to the book and, and what I learned. And, and like a lot of people, when I read Banker to the Poor and Muhammad Yunus says, you know, inside everybody is a natural entrepreneur just waiting to come out. And at the time, and this is going back 13 years ago, I was inspired by that. And I think part of that inspiration came from just being an American and the American dream and that idea that we could all become entrepreneurs. What I found, though, and I think one of the beauties of my work at Kiva and traveling to 50 different countries and talking to people, a lot of my job was interviewing these people who had taken loans, families, you know, faraway pockets of the world. Um, and I still remember going to places like, you know, Southern Java and asking people, what, how has this loan changed your life? And the responses that I got were really interesting because just like here in, in, in the West, so to speak, or just worldwide, people really want to see their children get a good education and, and chart a path of a good life. And what happens is microfinance comes into the community. And if, if they're, the only game is to become an entrepreneur, well, people are going to sign up for that if they're, if they're you know, poor and they have no other options. So what I, what I saw time and time again were people becoming entrepreneurs or, or being pushed or even seduced into it because they, they had no other choice. And so I, I actually personally believe that microfinance can act as a distortion of, of markets if unchecked, particularly around entrepreneurship. Because if you imagine if we all have a calling in life, perhaps in a community, just a handful of people are maybe meant to be entrepreneurs, if you believe in that, um, but not everybody else. And what happens is if they all become entrepreneurs, they actually stifle the, the quote, true entrepreneurs. And what we did at Kiva that I really just am inspired by um, is we built out products for um, school fees or children to attend schools. In fact, there's a part in the book in, in Java and both books I, I talk about a place that, that has a maritime academy that trains um, cadets so that they can uh, become, you know, uh, seafaring, you know, work, work on the seas. And I think what that does, and we also did a lot for um, medical surgeries and just things outside of entrepreneurship, which they're often deemed, you know, consumption loans and they're, they're not taken seriously by a lot of banks. But I think that that's one way out of poverty is to provide financing to help people. Not to mention what I learned around savings clubs where the money's not even coming from outside. And, and I spent time in West Africa right before Kiva and I learned about savings clubs. And that's really dear to my heart. It's communities taking on um, the role of saving together and, and working together without people coming in with outside money, which can also disrupt environments. And one of the things that I like about where I'm at now is um, lend a hand. It's way smart support small businesses and what that means is creating jobs for people so we will support entrepreneurs but those entrepreneurs are then creating jobs rather than you know trying to create an entrepreneur out of everyone i think it's just a more efficient model and in terms of how you see the the 
development uh, progress where you have uh, microloans for entrepreneurs and then you have SME finance that's starting to uh, develop both from the bottom end and from the from the top end, looking at more the medium-sized uh, businesses with banks financing them. How how long a period do you think we have left before there's uh, the same access to finance for the SME sector that there is for the for micro uh, for micro businesses? I know at Lendahan it's it's been slow going, but we're starting to gain some traction, and I think as I think it really does come down to raising awareness around this, like organizations like yours and, and other organizations um, and even Lendahan is trying to raise awareness that, Hey, let's in a, in a financial system that's healthy, let's make sure that everybody's included. And that includes small businesses, medium enterprises um, that are, are not getting access to finance because that's really, I think the, the ultimate goal is that, the, the same financial services that we enjoy in places like in the U.S. and in Europe, um, everybody has access to that. It doesn't mean you just go throwing money around, but it's giving people that access. And I do think that some of the strides made with organizations like uh, Kiva um, around um, mobile payments and being able to, you know, leverage technology for uh, lending and even credit referencing. Uh, Lenahan is about to enter an organi- um, uh, a partnership with an organization in South Africa that um, does online lending to um, SMEs, and they do credit references and all that um, online for the, you know for the most part. And I think that that that's where I see a lot of the future using technology because in microfinance, a lot of the costs do come down to to having to visit people and to do follow-up and things like that, which you may always need in some sectors, but the, the hope is that we can spread microfinance to all levels uh, of people's needs, you know? So, and just my yardstick is, okay, what do I have access to? What are the people that I have, I know have access to? What services um, can those be replicated or, or introduced in other places beyond just debt, savings, insurance, all of that? Yeah, I think that's a, a good good measurement tool um, for for where to start. And there's it seems like there's potential from technology to, to really change the cost side of, of delivering that, and also increase the the efficiency because if you can more adequate adequately understand the background of of a business that you're financing, then it's it's easier to assess the risk and, and it gets uh, pricing that's more appropriate for the financing. Yeah. Have you seen, have you seen that, uh, those, that promise from technology? Have you seen that uh, come in to, to be realized? I think we're in the early stages and a little bit of this has to do with um, credit bureaus and the evolution of, of governments, um, you know, places, places like Kenya where mobile payments are, are really taking off, that, that we're not seeing that everywhere, uh, not in every country, but we're seeing experiments here and there. Um, I, re- I remember when I first started Akiva, I think it was probably 2011, I was in Cambodia, and somebody said, yeah, a telecom company tried to do that, and they just got shut down. So there's, 
there's still government um, or a need for government support. So I think it's, it's not just the social entrepreneurs that are driving this. We, we definitely need help from all sectors, particularly governments. And I think it requires that raising awareness that I think is just so critical to, to doing this kind of work. And what do you see uh, looking forward five or 10 years? What would you, what would you really like to see come out of the, the work that you've done with Kiva with uh, lend a hand now? Yeah, what's, it's what's the vision for where, where we should be in aiming for in 10 years. I don't know if it's just technology that's going to do this, but I have an eight year old son and he knows a little bit about my work and one day when he's of age, maybe he's 18 years old, so maybe 10 years from now, and he really learns about finance. I'm hoping that we've reached a place where he looks back on what we're doing now and he chuckles and says, Dad, I, I can't believe that's how you used to do it. And so that's my hope is that technology and awareness sort of work in tandem to put us in a place where what we do now is – uh, more streamlined it's safer it's got trust it's got basically love infused in finance that's my real hope is that we really do lead from love in this work and and again that's through sharing risk and trust and being vulnerable and and creating a financial system that ensures that and protects that you know and i, I know a lot of traditional bankers still scoff at microfinance but i i hope that that changes and I think one of the ways it'll change is if we have enough safeguards and we have enough evidence to show that this is not really about being a silver bullet. It's about creating something that slowly gets infused in our traditional banking system where somebody can go into the bank and say, I want financing that is shared. The risk is shared, you know, and that's just the norm. That's what I hope is that we almost take some of these things for granted in the future. Well, that's great. Uh, thank you for, again for your time for the for the interview with the podcast. And uh, the book is Crossing Allenby Bridge, uh, Michael Luft. It's on Amazon and uh, on Kindle. Uh, so thank, thanks again for joining the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks again for listening to the Responsible Finance Podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Podbean. If you want to stay updated about RFI's work, you can find the link to subscribe to our newsletter on our Twitter feed at RFI Foundation. You can also follow me at Sharing Risk. Hope you'll join us for our next podcast.